0: Gentlemen, for the honorable testimony which you have been pleased this day to express to my official conduct in this highly distinguished station, I pray you to accept my profound acknowledgments. Near 14 years, with but two comparatively short intervals, the arduous duties of the chair have been assigned to me. In that long period of peace and of war, causes from without and within, of great public excitement, have occasionally divided our councils, disturbed our harmony, and threatened our safety. Happily, however, past dangers which appeared to encompass us were dispelled, as I anxiously hope those of the present will be, in a spirit of mutual forbearance, moderation, and wisdom. The debates in this house, to which those causes gave rise, were sometimes ardent and animated, But amidst all the heats and agitations produced by our temporary divisions, it has been my happy fortune to experience, in an unexampled degree, the kindness, the confidence, and the affectionate attachment of the members of the House. Of the numerous decisions which I have been called upon to pronounce from this place, on questions often suddenly started and of much difficulty, it has so happened, from the generous support given me, that not one of them has ever been reversed by the house. I advert to this fact, not in a vain spirit of exultation, but as furnishing a powerful motive for undissembled gratitude. In retiring, perhaps forever, from a situation with which so large a portion of my life has been associated, I shall continually revert, during the remainder of it, with unceasing respect and gratitude, to the great theater of our public action, and with the firm belief that the public interest and the liberty of our beloved country will be safely guarded hereafter, as they have been heretofore, by enlightened patriotism. With those words, Henry Clay bid farewell to the House of Representatives. It would prove to be a turning point in his life, as he would never serve again in that body, either as a member or as Speaker. From here on out, Clay's political path forward would be set on a new trajectory, with his guiding star being the House at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Hello and welcome to the Harrison Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Before we get started, just to let you know what I've got planned for the next couple of episodes. This episode is going to focus on the State Department and American foreign relations in general during Clay's time as Secretary of State. Then in a separate episode, we'll focus in on Latin American relations in Clay's State Department, as our dear General William Henry Harrison was appointed as U.S. Minister to Columbia at the time, and thus played a role in U.S. relations with that part of the Western Hemisphere. Both Clay and Harrison would assume their posts at an interesting time in Latin American history, as we discussed in terms of Harrison in episodes 25 and 26. If you haven't listened to those episodes yet, I'd recommend going back and giving them a listen. Last thing before we get going, I'd like to give special thanks to the podcast audio editor, Andrew Foncook. His assistance is invaluable in both ensuring good audio quality for each episode and in occasionally catching my unintentional flubs before they make their way out to you, the audience. If you, like me, need Andrew's able editing experience with your next audio project, reach out to him via email at andrew@foncook. At that's p-f-a-n-n-k-u-c-h-e dot com. With that, let's delve into Clay's tenure at State. Clay would have big shoes to fill, as incoming President John Quincy Adams was coming from the State Department in which he had served during James Monroe's two terms of office. Thus, it was seen as a sure bet that he'd be heavily involved in the Department's affairs for the foreseeable future whenever possible, and knew the lay of the land around state better than the incoming secretary. The State Department that Clay was coming into, despite its prominent role in the federal government, was in fact a pretty trim office in terms of headcount at its headquarters in D.C. As noted by historian Leonard White, quote, When John Marshall turned over the State Department to James Madison in 1801, its staff numbered one chief clerk, seven clerks, and a messenger. Twenty years later, the size of the office had increased by only two clerks, an assistant messenger, a laborer, and two watchmen. Meanwhile, the work had greatly increased in volume. Clay would, in time, list the duties of the State Department during his tenure as its head as follows. Quote, Correspondence with 14 American ministers, two claims agents, and 110 consuls. Correspondence with from 10 to 14 foreign ministers resident in Washington. Issuing passports and sea letters and Mediterranean passports for ships. Compiling list of passengers arriving in the United States and of registered seamen. Examination of departmental accounts and application of funds for distressed seamen. Reports to Congress on calls for information. Correspondence with governors judicial officers, marshals, and United States attorneys, preservation of public papers and printing and distribution of the laws, supervision of the patent office, supervision of the census, compiling the biennial register of officers, authentication of documents, keeping records of pardons and remission of fines and forfeitures, custody of the great seal and recording of commissions. Basically, in a time before the White House had a communications office, The State Department acted as the administration's communication wing, both domestically and abroad. Likewise, since there was at that point no Justice Department, an executive office which would not be created until after the Civil War, communication with the administration's law enforcement officers was also funneled through the State Department. All of this with less than 20 folks on payroll. Talk about a lean workforce. When Clay was nominated to head the State Department, he felt that it was a fait accompli, Little did he know that pro-Jackson partisans would use his confirmation to make a statement about their discontent about how the recent presidential election had been settled. Though only one senator, John Branch of North Carolina, would speak out in the Senate in opposition to Clay's confirmation, 14 senators would vote against Clay. The man from Kentucky still had a safe majority of the votes, but this was an early sign that any era of good feelings that there had been was at an end, and there would be a staunch opposition to the new administration. Despite this opposition, no one could stop Clay from making the move from the Capitol building over to the offices of the State Department. The State Department building at the time was at Pennsylvania Avenue and 15th Street, a site which is now the north wing of the Treasury Department building. It was a two-story brick building of the Greek Revival architectural style that was, quote, in line with the south facade of the White House. As he settled into Adams' old seat, Clay would have to figure out an approach to the new president. He had positioned himself in opposition to Monroe and his administration, but now Clay was on the inside. As he adjusted to leading his department, he would have to feel out how much influence he would have in the administration. Adams himself had found out when he took over at State that, though the Secretary of State played a key role, quote, "...to assist the President to define foreign policy in all its aspects, large and small, and to carry it forward in particular negotiations." Ultimately, the president would be the decider and would make his determinations on foreign policy after consultation with various officials. As we've seen thus far in our journey through Clay's life, he wasn't one who enjoyed being in a subordinate role, but he likely saw this as the most logical step for him to take if he were to become president. Surprisingly, Adams and Clay got along well during the term. As noted by Clay biographer Robert Remini, quote, Not too long before, they had cordially disliked each other but in a relatively short period of time, they had been able to forget the past and work together toward making a success of their partnership. They were united in their desire to show the electorate that this administration would add luster to the nation's glorious history. In terms of policy and program, they agreed almost totally. Within a month of his appointment as Secretary of State, Clay told a friend that an entire harmony as to public measures exists between Mr. Adams and me. The critical 21st century mind questions the sincerity of the sudden change of heart, but there is no question that the fate of these two men was now inexorably linked. He may have decided to grin and bear it for the time being, but it didn't mean that the role wouldn't challenge Clay. Indeed, when he made the decision to accept the position at state, he wrote to a friend from Virginia that, quote, they will abuse me for it. They would have abused me more if I had declined it. There's no way to know if the latter was true, but certainly the former was. A future member of the U.S. House of Representatives, Theodore E. Burden, would assert that this period of Clay's life, quote, was probably the least congenial period of his whole official life. Clay soon was receiving reports from Kentucky of discontent amongst his supporters and the general public at Jackson having been denied the presidency. In short order, Clay would lose the support of two individuals, Amos Kendall and Francis P. Blair, who would come to play prominent roles in the Jackson administration. Clay would attempt to answer criticisms of the corrupt bargain, with an address published initially in the National Journal in Washington, D.C., then subsequently published in nearly every newspaper in Kentucky and in other papers nationwide. But as Remedy notes, quote, In one sense, Clay did himself a distinct disservice. Although his constituents desired an explanation of his actions in view of the accusations leveled against him, the address also served to keep the issue before the entire electorate it necessarily invited responses from his critics. In some ways, it defined the line by which folks would fall in on one side or the other. By the fall of 1825, the Republican Party in Kentucky was split in two between those who supported Clay and the Adams administration and those who supported Jackson, a division that would ultimately play out on a national scale. His political weakness was likewise reflected in a physical weakness that developed around the time of his nomination. Clay took to bed with what he described as a, quote, cold or influenza, and would indeed spend most of the next four years in ill health, to the point at times where he would consider resigning from his post. He had hoped that his departure for Ashland in mid-May would help him to recover his health, but by the time he prepared to return to Washington in July, he was still not well. Likewise. Whatever comfort he drew from the fact that his family would be joining him in Washington for the duration of his tenure as Secretary of State was soon shattered as his youngest daughter, Eliza, fell ill on the way. After receiving treatment from a doctor for a few weeks, the doctor assured the Clays that Eliza would recover. Thus, the decision was made for the rest of the family to remain with Eliza and continue the journey once she was well enough to go on, while Clay continued on to Washington. He was within 20 miles of the Capitol when he read in the latest issue of the National Intelligencer that his daughter had died. One month later, word would come that another daughter, Susan Clay Duralt, had died of yellow fever. Clay would write a couple of days later that, quote, Age, grief, and misfortune make us feel a great want, and God alone can supply that. Clay would throw himself into his work beginning in the late summer, early fall of 1825 to the point that friends, including Daniel Webster, were writing him and asserting that, quote, you must allow me to admonish you to take care of your health. Knowing the ardor and the intensity with which you probably apply yourself to the duties of your place, I fear very much you may overwork yourself. I'm going to interject another armchair hypothesis here, so please get your grains of salt ready. But I wonder if this dedication to work is what ultimately won Adams over that Clay could be and was serious about his duties. As we've seen, Adams had his concerns about Clay and Ghent, but as we'll see, it does seem that Adams afforded Clay a certain degree of respect and free reign during his tenure at State that he didn't give many folks. This didn't mean, of course, that he listened to all of Clay's advice, as evidenced by Adams' first annual message to Congress in December 1825. In it, Adams laid out a bold, ambitious plan for the United States that included the building of roads and canals, the establishment of a national university, the creation of a national astronomical observatory, funding for geographic exploration, and other progressive endeavors aimed at making the nation a leader in scholarly as well as economic pursuits. Cabinet members were against the message, mainly for the fact that they thought it had no chance of passing Congress and would likely also face public criticism. Clay pronounced Adams' recommendations, quote, entirely hopeless. And Adams even noted that, quote, Mr. Clay was for recommending nothing which, from its unpopularity, would be unlikely to succeed. But still, Adams persisted, asserting that the, quote, perilous experiment must be made. And so it was, and so it landed with a thud in Congress and in newspaper commentary. Thomas Ritchie of the Richmond Inquirer mocked it by asking in an editorial, quote, are we really reading a state paper or a schoolboy's thesis? America was changing, but not necessarily according to Adams's or Clay's vision for it. As noted by Theodore Burden, the Adams presidency, quote, marked a transition between the earlier days when foreign relations had assumed a very prominent position and during which time all our presidents except Washington had served as secretary of state or as ministers to foreign countries. The United States turned its face from war-weary Europe to the Great West, and there came a long period in which domestic political questions were of paramount interest. As noted earlier, the State Department did have some domestic duties, but Clay was willing to give those up in order to focus on foreign affairs. He sent a report to Congress on February 16, 1826, asserting that, quote, "...there are too many and too incompatible duties devolved upon the department." He was not the detailed and scrupulous John Quincy Adams who had come into an office where papers were getting lost on a regular basis and had taken it upon himself to implement reforms and measures that would help to bring order to the chaos. Though he complained about, quote, the necessity of attending to the minutest details and of superintending with incessant vigilance, even the routine of the office. Clay would barrel down and do the work, often working over 12 or 14 hours a day. But he had none of the zeal for it that Adams did, and it hindered the recovery of his health, though it did earn the admiration and respect of Adams. Another area in which Adams would not listen to Clay was on the subject of appointments. Clay had warned Adams not to retain officials from the Monroe administration who had come out in support of his opponents during and after the 1824 election but Adams preferred to administer the executive branch in a nonpartisan manner. Thus, he would retain people like Postmaster General John McLean, who would supply information back to anti-Adams forces and use his position to advance the cause of the administration's opponents. Likewise, Adams refused to listen to Clay when he proposed that our own William Henry Harrison be appointed as U.S. Minister to Mexico. We can only speculate what this appointment might have meant for Harrison in terms of restoring his financial solvency sooner, for our relations with our southern neighbor, or for the nation as a whole, had Harrison been able to rise to national prominence sooner. Adams' idealism, however, didn't mean that knowing someone didn't hurt, or that there were not some appointments made for political reasons. Harrison's own appointment to the diplomatic post in Columbia being counted as one of the latter by historian Mary Hargreaves in her examination of the Adams administration. Where he could, Clay would flex his muscles, and he is said to have boasted in 1827 that quote, nobody can say that I neglect my friends. In addition to patronage of positions in the executive branch, Clay would use his office to remove quote, the printing patronage to publish the laws from editors who failed to support the administration, a partisan move that Remini would note quote, was unprecedented for the time. Likewise, in his proposals for the nation's foreign policy, Clay proposed an unprecedented shift of attention from Europe to the Western Hemisphere. This was nothing unusual for Clay, as he had advocated a new approach to Latin America as early as 1817, as we discussed briefly in episode 36. As mentioned earlier, I plan to devote an entire episode to Clay's policy towards Latin America while serving as Secretary of State. But for now, all you need to know is that Clay felt that it was more likely that the U.S. could establish more of, quote, a competitive advantage for U.S. trade in Latin American ports than it could with European powers. Certainly, Clay hit a brick wall when it came to negotiations with the British. At the time, a number of issues which had been lingering since before the War of 1812 still remained unsettled between the two nations, including the boundary of Maine, navigation of the St. Lawrence River from U.S. ports, the boundary of Oregon, Fishery rights off the coast of Newfoundland, an agreement on principles of quote neutral commerce and impressment in wartime, and trading rights with the British West Indies. At first, the possibility for an agreement on the West Indies trade at least looked promising, as a proposal came from the President of the British Board of Trade in May 1825 that would have allowed U.S. ships to trade with the British colonies after paying a duty, but it was too little of a concession on the British part for Clay's liking. Thus, in the spring of 1826, Adams and Clay approached their old colleague from the Ghent Commission, Albert Gallatin, about undertaking a special diplomatic mission to Britain to resolve the trade issue and to do what he could to find resolution to as many of the other issues as possible. Gallatin would meet his match in London, and he would find the British government unwilling to budge. He would write to Clay on September 22, 1826, about his difficulties in negotiations and would speculate on what factors had changed since his last encounter with the British in 1818. At first wondering whether it was the new characters in government, Gallatin would then assert that, quote, the difference may be in the times rather than in the men. Treated it in general with considerable arrogance till the last war, with great attention, if not respect, during the years that followed it, The United States are now an object of jealousy, and a policy founded on that feeling has been avowed. The British would impose an order in council on July 27, 1826 that closed British ports in the West Indies to U.S. ships after December 1st. And Gallatin would only prove capable of concluding negotiations in August 1827 on two conventions that continued the previous one that had been negotiated back in 1815 and extending the joint occupation of the Oregon country by the two nations. Then the next month, concluded a treaty agreeing to refer the question about the Maine-Canada boundary, quote, to a friendly sovereign acceptable as a decision-maker to both sides. In essence, the Adams administration struck out when it came to its relations with the British. They would, however, fare much better with other European powers. In the end, Clay's State Department would conclude treaties with 12 foreign nations, more than had been negotiated under any previous administration. Some of these would be with newly formed Latin American nations, but others would be with established European powers, including Denmark in 1826, the Hanseatic Republics, Norway and Sweden in 1827, and Prussia in 1829. These treaties would expand U.S. commerce on the basis of reciprocity and expand the nation's economic influence with European powers. Ultimately, though, Theodore Burden, when considering the efforts of Clay and his department in relations with Europe, would conclude that, quote, negotiations with European countries were for the most part left unfinished by Clay and in a most unsatisfactory condition. Though he remarks that, quote, it is not easy for those who live in the present to realize how difficult it was to obtain settlements with foreign countries at that time. While we continue our journey through the life of Henry Clay, we'll look in depth at his successes and failures in his push to pivot the focus of U.S. foreign policy to Latin America. However, next episode, we will be taking a brief pause from this journey, both to allow me some time to research for the episode, as well as to mark a milestone in the history of the Harrison Podcast. I hope you'll join me back here then. In the meantime, please feel free to reach out to me via email at harrisonpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Harrison Podcast, again, all one word. I'm also on Twitter at Harrison Podcast, no space needed there either. Source information for this episode can be found on the blog at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. You can catch up on past episodes at the blog or on iTunes or Stitcher if you're not listening to us from there already. As always, I thank you so much for listening. Take care, dear friends. Until next time.